the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. That I probably didn't have religious bone in my body. While listening to the praise team play a song, it was almost as if I was hearing it as a sort of a divine speech. I don't need your money. I want your life. In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator born and raised on the West Coast. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 Cast. There is just someone named Jesus who came and died for me. I was like, no, that can't be right. Hi, welcome back to the 180 cast. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. This is the podcast dedicated to exploring how people change their minds. Thank you so much for joining me today. The share of Americans who say they are unaffiliated with any religion has grown surprisingly rapidly from 17% to 26% just since 2007. That population is pulling directly from the demographic of self-identifying Christians, which is very interesting. And there are apparently as many millennials who say they never attend religious services as there are who say that they go at least once a week. Some people might find that alarming, and it is, but as a Christian, I do know that God is in control and that his kingdom worldwide will continue to expand no matter what the polling says or how people feel about it. But the decline in religiosity does present a challenge, but also sort of an opportunity for Christians to witness to people who don't already, who don't already believe that they're saved, who don't have a false faith, faith, a false profession of faith or a, a veneer of religiosity, um, but who declare that they either don't care for religion and or don't believe in God. But this raises an interesting question, which we need to explore. And that is how do atheists come to Jesus? What convinces them? What are their stories? Obviously, the Bible, the Bible has a lot of insight, but we can also learn from people's personal testimonies, which can be so powerful. And talking to formal atheists and hopefully in the future, talking to people who used to describe themselves as Christians, that would be a very 180 cast thing to do. And that is what we are going to do today. My next guest has done the most radical spiritual and intellectual 180 I think is possible. And that is from being, going from being an atheist to being a follower of Jesus Christ. He is an award-winning historian of Reformation and post-Reformation Europe, a professor at Vanderbilt University, and also teaches at a maximum security prison. His latest book is called Mystery Unveiled, The Crisis of the Trinity in Early Modern England. Dr. Paul C.H. Limp, thank you for sitting down to talk with me today on this critical subject. Thank you. It's a great delight to join you. 
And you're currently writing a new book, right? Yes, uh huh. I am. What's that about? Uh, well, I am writing a book that deals with the shift in the way that people thought about and talked about Jesus. Um, it's called Christ Enlightened with a question mark. How Jesus went from a God to be worshipped to a man to follow in early Enlightenment England. I know it's a mouthful, but it's um, so it's partly to do with, uh, I mean, our you know, history writing is not always autobiographical, but I am deeply interested in the sort of a transformation of plausibility structures in the way that what people think um, is possible or plausible. So pre-Galilean times, you know, I think most people thought it uh, impossible, if not preposterous, the idea that the earth was not the center of the universe, right? Right. And but after that, we think like, well, anyone who thinks that is an idiot. So I <laughs> think, you know, what I'm trying to figure out is what about the idea of Jesus as uh, perfectly divine and perfectly human uh, became not only implausible, but impossible as a theological proposition. So that's the book that I'm writing at Very the moment. And I'm about, I don't know five chapters to go. Well, you've gotten, sounds like you've made significant headway. That sounds really, really interesting. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. Before we get into the questions, note to the listener, please do not forget that you can subscribe to the podcast to stay updated. Just click the little button that says subscribe in whatever podcast catcher you are listening in. We do release a new episode every Friday with bi-weekly breakdowns where I talk about trending news and timely topical discussions on politics and culture. It's a really good time. Very interesting. Always aim to be thought-provoking. If you have a friend or two who would find this episode of interest in particular, please go ahead and hit pause and share it with them. Okay. Dr. Lim, do you want to be called Paul yes. or Dr. Lim? Uh, Paul is fine. You've called me doctor enough times, so just let's go, Paul. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> okay, Paul. Okay, so you used to be an atheist, and I think I heard that you were you were raised atheist. So, can you take me back to to what that was like? And like, if someone asked you why you were an atheist, what would you have said at that time? Well, you know, so I, I would say that it was basically not a militant atheism as much as just not really any particular religious upbringing, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I think um, my family, my father uh, grew up uh, a Christian in, in, in North Korea. My mother, not so much. And But as far as my nurture was concerned, religion was uh, kind of a factor, right? I mean, it was, um, I think I grew up partly in South Korea and then partly uh, here in Philadelphia. Well, not here per se, but here in the States in mm -hmm. Philly. And um, so when my family moved here, when I was in middle school, uh, at the end of ninth grade, then we started going to a local Korean church in South Jersey. But it was really for more cultural reasons than anything else. And so by the time I went to college, I felt like this is not it for me. So functional atheism, I suppose, is perhaps a more accurate way of describing it. So religion, in, uh, religion as a cultural practice had no... Mm, real influence or um, 
yeah, it didn't really capture my imagination, nor did it mean anything normative for me in my daily day life. So what happened once you uh, once you entered college? Yeah, so what happened was I went to, so my sister had gotten just engaged to a seminary student, and my sister was at the time a senior at the University of Chicago and headed to medical school. And as a recent immigrant family, you know, I thought I was going to be, I was an econ major at Yale at the time, and I was going to, you know, make hopefully a good deal of money. And um, and I just felt sorry for my sister who was going to go to, uh, who was going to end up marrying us a pastor. And I thought that was really not the best choice that she could make with her life and with her spouse to be. But uh, as it turns out, this man was going to be speaking at a retreat um, up in the Pocono Mountains, and my mom thought that it would be a good thing if I went to the retreat, even though she knew that I probably didn't have religious bone in my body. But I went just to make my mom feel, you know, less anxious. So I went, and um, to make a long story short, it was while listening to the praise team play a song. Uh, by a former golden oldie Christian singer named Keith Green mm-hmm. um, called To Obey Spirit and Sacrifice. I don't need your money. I want your life. And just, you know, merely a week or two ago, I told my sister that I will help your ministry, even though I don't believe in anything about Jesus Christ. But because you're my dear, dear sibling, I'll do everything I can to help you with my money. Now, it's a perfect confluence of coincidence or providence that the words of the song, which I, under any other circumstance, would have found it absolutely irrelevant, if not boring. It was almost as if I was hearing it as a uh, sort of a divine speech. I don't need your money. I want your life. And I remember sitting in the back of the uh, sanctuary, or not sanctuary, the gym, or whatever it's called, and um, just I started weeping. And I don't know, it was one of those uncontrollable, impossible to hold back kind of response. And, you know, my father had been uh, a political prisoner in South Korea. And so my major ruptures in my life were when I was nine, my father was incarcerated. When I was 15, my family immigrated. And when I was 21, um, I was going to be initiated into this new relationship with God something I never wanted, something I didn't really think would be desirable or possible. That's how it all began for me. So that meant that I had lots of questions like, what the belief happened to me? What am I doing? Uh, Who is God? And so naturally, I had a lot of these questions. So uh, the rest of my time at Yale, I took a few religious studies or philosophy of religion classes. And that really kindled my interest in learning more about God intellectually. And I think it's perhaps safe to say that the questions that I had then have been answered in some ways, yet strangely enough, it created within me more questions that has kept me going until now. So I think I always tell, I often tell people, you know, why I do what I do is I've got a good number of questions about the Christian faith, but these questions are not defeater questions. These are what um, Anselmo Canterbury called faith-seeking understanding. Mm-hmm. So I believe that God is. I believe that my life is not a kind of a you know phantom. Um, 
So I believe that God has somehow captured my heart and my life according to God's mercy and love and plan. And I'm trying to make sense of what that looks like. So that's what I'm doing now. I know it's a long and meandering way of answering that question, but hopefully there's no. So when you were, when you were at Yale and you were taking religious studies classes, what, what were those like? Cause I imagine that they, they probably weren't taught by Bible believing Christians. So how did you use those classes to answer your questions? Were your questions more historical or like, I mean, I'm sure some of that, some philosophical, but how did that help you in your, in your, your quest to find answers? Yeah. So, um, this is really interesting because, you know, uh, what do people say? Uh, something like, if I know then, if I knew then what I know now, I would not have, or I would have, you know, and you fill in the blank, right? right. So I think back then I was just simultaneously excited and apprehensive. Um, I think for me, my conversion experience was a little bit of a social suicide, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because back in the late 80s when I was in college, I don't think Christianity was cool, right? And mm-hmm. most of my friends who weren't Christians at the time, they did not think that what I was doing was cool, nor did they think that it'll last as long as it has. I remember talking to one of my good friends. He said, don't do anything like too radical or over, you know, don't don't go overboard. And so, but what happened was I knew that this this wasn't some kind of fake news, right? It had to be somewhat real. But I didn't know how to make sense of it. So I think somehow I began to read the Bible a lot, which helped answer some questions and yet created more. And I, you know, I would say that that's often a good sign that you're on the right track. That because people tend to think that well, once you come to a particular religion, whether it's Islam or Christianity or Buddhism, all your questions will be answered immediately. Uh, that may be true for some people, but that certainly isn't true for me. I think I began to have some questions answered, and yet it raised some other questions. I think for me, my father's incarceration uh, created within me a deep longing for theodicy answers, right? answers about the problem of evil and suffering. So I remember taking a class uh, by a professor whose reputation was growing at the time. She wasn't as big as she is now. Uh, her name is uh, Professor Catherine Tanner, and she had this class, and I told her recently, you know, a few years ago, uh, that her class called Divine Sovereignty and Human Self-Assertion really rocked my world. I mean, blew my socks off. And, you know, it's basically asking, you know, if God is all sovereign and all control, um, where is room for human agency and freedom, and whence comes evil? Right. And these are, I think what I didn't know at the time was like, that's going to be the kind of class. Yeah. You mentioned that I teach a class in maximum security prison. That is a class that I'm teaching this semester. It's a class called the uh, history of the Odyssey in Christian traditions or God and, hu- God and human suffering in Christian perspectives. And so when I took that class, I remember reading this book by uh, Soren Kierkegaard, Fear and Trembling. It's a book that deals with the question, the whole event of the, Akedah event of Abraham being called to sacrifice Isaac. Right. And yeah, and that's one that's one that that's one that people who aren't Christians have a lot of questions about. 
And Christians have a lot of questions about it, too. I know, right? I mean, absolutely. I mean, like, why would God, how could God fill in the blank? Which in this case is, why would a good and gracious God torment Abraham to do something that is completely counterintuitive? And, you know, it's like inhumane. I mean, can you imagine you being asked to sacrifice your child, me being asked to sacrifice my one and only son? I would not believe God. I mean, that just seems completely out of character. So I remember reading that book, right? And I, I, I remember reading it in Gen- in the book of Genesis, but it was much more forcibly grained into my, you know, my, my psyche and my mind when I read it from Kierkegaard. And it just really blew me away. Now, it, again, what did it do? I mean, I, I remember writing an essay, I mean, a, a long paper about it, and I think I did fine. But, you know, what I remember about these classes is that and I took a psychology religion class. You know, I was seeking for some concrete answers. And I think it, the answers must have been provided because I did not stop being a Christian. But then, again, it kindled within me greater yearning and longing. I'm doing a TEDx talk here in Nashville in a couple of months. And what I'm talking about is belonging and longing as two indicators of our human kind of identity, right? We want to belong. We have these deep-seated yearnings and longings. And, you know, I think that that's what it is. I think, you know, these great works of literature, whether it is Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky or Fear and Trembling by Kierkegaard, it forces us to face the absurd, absurd, the absurdity of um, the seeming contradictory impulses of God's all-loving and all-powerful presence um, and human foibles and failures and, you know, faux pas or just massive, massive, colossal um, acts of genocide or tyranny. And you get the picture. I don't mean to be so morbid here, but... Right. No, and and, and when... When sec- secular people or atheists open the Bible and they start in the Old Testament, there's a whole lot of stuff that even a lot of Christians, if they haven't read the whole thing, would be surprised by and have trouble grappling with. I mean, I, I myself, when I was reading through the whole Bible last year, uh, there were some things that honestly brought me to tears. It's, I couldn't, I couldn't, it's just like you said, I couldn't really wrap my head around it and I had to do you know, it's it's that it's that struggle. You're either gonna like weaken your faith or grow it by by how you deal with those with those questions. So you talked about theodicy and that you were looking for answers to the question of the problem of evil. So it, if you were if you were like talking to to let's say a college kid who was an atheist or was like he's a nun, right? Like. I'm yeah. not affiliated with any religion. And he brings us up to you and he's like, but look around you. There's so much suffering. Or, or you know, look at what happened to the, uh, you know, the Amalekite genocide back in the Old Testament and and what, Abraham and Isaac and, and all of that. What, what, what do you say? What do you say to that person? Yeah, no, I think you, you have to really authenticate the feeling of... Uh, disturbance and deep-seated anger and uh, confusion or just shaking our fists at God. 
I mean, you have to really validate rather than invalidate it because the feelings and the experiences are real. Because I think oftentimes Christians make this crippling and crucial mistake of saying, well, if only you understood God better, you would be saying nonsensical stuff like that. No, I think that's entirely the wrong way to begin. I think you have to begin with solidarity and sympathy. Like, hey, man, that's so true. I mean, like, yeah, it's it's really like, you know, I, you know, the whole story of, I don't know if you know the story, like, Absolutely macabre story in the book of Judges, chapters 19 through 21. It's about the story of a crazy story of this uh, concubine, of this Levite. You know what that story Like, if you don't know, please don't look it up. I mean, like, madness, <laughs> right? I mean, but it's, it's a, and you, you know what? Um, there are stories like that in the book of Judges, in the book of Genesis, and, you know, it's multiplication of these disturbing stories. I mean, that would really warrant serious trigger warnings in modern-day universities, right? Now, mm-hmm. here's my question. Like, okay, let's assume the possibility, even the remotest of possibilities, that there is some divine purpose and presence in the, in the preservation of scriptural account, right? So the, the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, or the New Testament. We're talking about the Old Testament right now. Like, it's it's miracle to me that believing communities of Jews and Christians have remained as such amid such cacophonous message and cruelty that's shot right the way through, not all the way through, but in many of the pages of a scroll, different points of the scroll within the, the, the Jewish Torah or, you know, the Christian Old Testament. So I think I would want to affirm, yeah, I don't know why it's there, but it is there. And what is it? It, it does seem to events the real um the depth of human fallenness i think and at the same time now many people would not have a problem affirming the even if you don't mean fallenness as in like related to a historical or putatively historical fall of adam and eve but you know i think the reason why i love the brothers karamatov and as many uh would agree that is probably one of the best works of literature full stop, it's because it shows us the grotesqueness of humanity. I mean, at least for Dostoevsky, he really felt that the Enlightenment project and the human project that the Enlightenment uh, kind of rationality and enterprise entailed was going to lead to this point of absurdity where anything is possible, right? Immortality is thrown out the window, then immorality comes in and nothing can check it. So I think we have to kind of look uh, squarely, you know, at that reality, which is not to say at the same time that, you know, if you're, uh, if you don't believe in immortality or nothing but immoral, you and I both know that that's not the case because you and I also know plenty of people who are nuns or atheists or whatever, who are really pursuing moral you know, uh, integrity and, and ethical kind of pathways that are really commendable. And tragically enough, you and I also know people who claim the name of Jesus uh, and yet live like Jesus never rose from the dead, right? So I think that's, uh, and I was telling a group of students today that the best thing I've learned in my life, I've learned it at the London tube station, subway station. You know, it says what, every time trains train doors open, it tells you mind the gap, right? It tells you mind the gap between theory and practice. Our confession of what reality should be like 
and how we walk into that reality. It's, you know, it's that ontological gap, it's that ethical gap, it's that epistemological gap. We're not God, so we don't know what God knows. Our God is finite, God is infinite, and we are finite, so there is a fragility of our, our self, but also God knows and we don't know, so there is an epistemological gap, and God is holy and we're not, so there's an ethical gap. Now, if, if I'm not a Christian, we're not going to take seriously God's, you know, ethical rectitude and all that, but I have always found interesting that I was just asked by a atheist YouTuber to engage with him in a conversation about why he doesn't believe in God and why I believe in God. And I told him, mm, I don't want to do it right now for different reasons, but I thought after I sent him that email, I thought it was really interesting. If you really don't believe in God, why would you want to spend like an hour and a half talking to me about something that you don't really believe exists, right? I mean, like for right. a while. Was, I mean, I... was, it, was it C.S. Lewis who said like atheists believe two things? One, that there is no God, and two, that they hate him. Like <laughs> Something like that. That one I mean, always you, stuck with me. Either radio shows, and you got to have these kind of sound bites, and I'm, that sounds about right, you know, either Tolkien or Lewis. I think Lewis was probably better equipped with those one-line zingers than Tolkien. So let's, yeah. let's go with Lewis here. But, yeah, you know what? I mean, I'm not, listen, I'm not trying to besmirch or, like, ridicule atheism. I mean, that's right. not how I'm wired. But I think, you know, it's, uh, yeah, and, you know, we often walk away from theism or the plausibility of theism, not because it really doesn't make sense logically or theologically, but so often it is the existential problem we have with the structure of the universe that this good and gracious and all-powerful God has created, that we find that to be incompatible with my expectation of life. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine who's uh, who did his PhD at Princeton on Karl Barth's theodicy, and he uh, he emailed me recently and said, "Paul, uh, he's been um, he's been a Christian and a pastor for about thirty five years." He said, "You know what I realize now is that the only real theological problem we have is one of theodicy." And I think so. I think if you're a Christian, you have to somehow struggle with that. If you don't struggle with the questions of theodicy, especially, you know, in our global stage, uh, I would say that you have no heart. I mean, if, you, if you're a Christian and if you're like, I'm happy all the time, something ain't right. <laughs> How right. can you be happy all the time, you know, when you actually care to look around and, and uh, smell the stench of so many who are suffering, perhaps justly, but in many other ways unjustly. And um, so I think I, I have become a little, a little less cocksure about the apologetic kind of rightness of my viewpoint and a lot more sympathetic to those who are suffering. Whether, and I think this is what John Calvin said, you know, the fact that we share the imago Dei, you know, the image of God with all other human creatures, whether they had any desert within them, whether they deserve to be treated dusty or not, the fact that God has created all of us in God's image and our, you know, and this God is commanding us to look squarely into the face and to the eyeballs of the other and recognize the image of God, which is in the book of uh, his uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion, book three. To me, that's one of the most beautiful passages. And when I sometimes teach that passage, I don't tell them it is John Calvin because Calvin has a bad name, right? He's I a mean, very controversial figure. 
Right, right. So I usually say, hey, let's read this passage. And they're usually blown away. Like, whoa, this is such a beautiful passage. Sublime beauty of our ethical kind of responsibility toward the other. And I said, guess who wrote this? And they will say things like, I mean, uh, Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, Gandhi. And I said, no, it's JC. His initials are JC. And they will say, is it Jesus Christ? I said, no, it's John (laughs) Calvin. And they're like, no, it can't be. I said, I'm telling you, it is from Calvin. And it's like, oh, he's a hypocrite. I said, you know what? We all are. We all are. I mean, there is, again, we got to mind For the listener who doesn't, for the listener who who isn't clued in, um, what was uh, John Calvin's hypocrisy? Well, I mean, just to be a human means, I mean, so I think, um, so uh, he says that, you know, we have this ethical responsibility to embrace all, uh, no matter who, no matter where, no matter how. And I think uh, Calvin was a refugee pastor, um, so it was a Frenchman. Uh, lived in Geneva a good number of his years, and uh, one of the costs celeb in his life was there was a Spanish um, Catholic who was eradicated by the Catholic Church. Uh, he knew by the time that this guy, Michael Servetus, Miguel Servet, came to Geneva, Servetus knew that Calvin was like the um, bad boy pastor, like the most kind of a influential pastor in arguably among second generation reformers and he kind of egged him on because uh, uh did did believe that um the trinity was just an arithmetical mistake and it was a diabolical calculation so um Servi- uh, calvin basically agreed to the um execution of servetus uh, calvin agreed to servetus's um, burning at the stake. So I think that's mm-hmm. often cited as a sort of a breaking point of his ethical embrace of the other. And I say, yeah, I mean, sure, in modern sensibilities, we will all say, yeah, that's probably not the way to do it. That's definitely not the way that I'm going to do it. But would I have behaved differently? I don't know. I hope I would have, but probably not. I don't know. You know, because I think, put it this way, Julie, like, what is so clearly, pat- like patently clear to us now as something that is so self-evident may not be that self-evident to us, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, um, right, like slavery. Uh, yeah, like like slavery. Like like for some people, uh, though not all, some people believe that, and myself included, that women should have um, no restrictions in being able to serve uh, in the church as uh, pastors and priests, right? Mm-hmm. Now. For some people, that's so self-evident, but it's not self-evident to some people today, and certainly wasn't self-evident in Calvin's days. You see what I mean? And so slavery being a very, very good example. So, you know, um, yeah, I mean, so what is clear to us after 200 years or 500 years of hindsight or, you know, the historical flow, Mm -hmm. uh, we're not. So, you know, I I, I, I often think, you know, let's say, in the year 2520, what would our descendants say about how we have thought about X, Y, and Z, right? They'll say how antiquated, how obnoxious, how, you know what I mean? Like, ill-founded and ill-formed their notions about self and society and shape of salvation or whatever. And I think we just have to remain, have some kind of a, 
um, humility and in not taking ourselves that seriously, right? And right. So, and the the humility of of you know believing the past is another country, so to speak, that can help us understand a lot of what's in the Bible too, right? You mean as far as the the servitude that happened inside um, the nation of Israel? Mm, mm, yes, yes. I think you're right about that. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, St. Paul says we see through the glass darkly. We know in part. We prophesy in part. And I think that's a very salutary reminder, especially in our day right now, of absolute political and cultural division, right? Polarization. I mean, I am, you know, in terms of my own identity, I am way too liberal for my conservative friends, and I'm intolerantly conservative for my liberal friends. And I used to really be, you know, worked up and depressed about that. But now in my 52nd year of life, I said, you know what? Deal with it. You know, I'm not going to apologize for it. Like, this is how God has wired me, how God has transformed me and trained me. And I want to be loving. I want to be willing to listen to and learn from others. Because as one of my uh, favorite uh, Christian philosophers, Francis Schaeffer said, you know, God, uh, all truth is God's truth. That means I'm obligated to learn from people that I may not naturally think that they might have something to teach me, right? And I think it is, uh, yeah, it, especially in our kind of a context of global um, stage of, you know, our country has become, has always been a nation of immigrants, but, you know, with global immigration being what it is, we have, I mean, advantage of their, you know, students from all different parts of the, all continents of the world. They have a lot to teach me. I used to think that I go overseas to teach, but I feel like nowadays I go overseas to learn, learn about myself, mm. learn about my savior. And I think that kind of attitude, at least for me, really keeps me grounded. Um, so. Yeah. I, I have a, a question seeing as how you're, you're a professor. Um, why are universities so good seemingly at churning out these quote-unquote nuns, people who are unaffiliated with religion. Like you said, mm. I, I think I heard you say, like based off of John Calvin's writings, that our hearts are like idol factories. Um, and it seems like colleges <laughs> put that on steroids, even the Christian ones. Like there are a lot of kids that come out of colleges that are branded as Christian, and they are they bear no resemblance to the Christian faith any longer. Um, what... What, what do you think is going on there? And like, what do Christians do about it? Yeah. I know that's like a big question. But if you want to take a stab at it. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I want to say something like, do you know that movie, A Few Good Men, with uh, Jack Nicholson, Timothy Moore, and um, was that uh, uh, Tom Cruise? Uh, Colonel yeah, Jessup, yeah, he gets under the witness stand and he asks, you want to know the truth? You want to know the truth? You can't handle the truth, right? Because I think, so, uh, there, there are no perfect universities, right? Uh, there has never been, there never will be because it's populated by human beings, right? So we have to recognize the fragility of our, our, of our knowing and of our acting and our being. I think students, uh, so the, the classic, more conservative answer is, 
oh, dang it, it's the liberal university and these professors are hell-bent in destroying any shred of credibility of traditional Christianity. Is that true? Oh, I think there are some that are like that, yes. Um, I think um, nowadays, I think, you know, it's, in, it's an interesting fact. You will find far more f- faculty members and grad and undergrad students who are Christians in a more hardcore STEM disciplines rather than humanities. Because, and that, that's seemingly contradictory because, or kind of a puzzling, because you would think that hard sciences are more hardwired to reject the kind of classical or Christian theism. No, if you believe in truth with a capital T, or whatever that is, and you believe that try hard, think hard, experiment hard, solve the problem better, you'll arrive at the answer. Uh, regardless of whether you are white or Hispanic or whether you are transgender or heterosexual, you believe that solving this calculus problem will give us the solution. Or, you know, that's, that is belief in a kind of linear theory in epistemology. We, all right, we have the problem, we want to solve the problem, and re- regardless of our particular locations, our solution or the answer will be the same. Humanities, I think, because of the issues of postcolonialism and because of the issues of a number of these kind of a indeterminate theory of human knowledge, basically, it just says your truth is your truth and my truth is may not. My truth may not be that. So I do think that that's one way of answering it. Another way of answering it, to be honest with you, is that I think for some Christians, when they arrive at universities and colleges, they learn more about the sort of um, things that were done in the name of God that aren't, frankly, very nice. But I think it, I would attribute the problem both to the churches that they were nurtured in or families that they came from where they were shielded from these hard truths about Christianity, right? Things that were done in the name of God that I think, you know, this couldn't possibly be, right? And I think then you come to universities and you learn about the sort of, you, you realize that there's a huge gap. And then you become, maybe some just walk away clearly from it um, and run into the pathway of atheism or non-theism. Like, you know, it's irrelevance, right? It's not that they reject it outrightly, but it's like, it's just irrelevant to me. It was part of my identity before, but it is not anymore. And so I do think that uh, it's that uh, coming of age too, right? You you go from high school, you end around 18 or 17, 18, 19, you go to the next stage, and now you are at most universities and colleges, professors uh, such as myself pontificate, telling them, hey, you really need to think for yourself, and not let your parents or your peers tell you what to think. And so then you are now, okay, I got to think about this for myself. And more often than not, it is the first time that they're facing these hard questions. So I do think that youth groups and, and, uh, and their congregations w- would do themselves huge service by seeking to answer these questions, even if you don't have the answers, other, you know, seeking to uh, tackle these questions. And uh, yeah. I, I it's great that yeah. you bring it's great that you bring that up because that was my follow up question is, you know, evangelicals especially put a lot of love and effort into church based ministries and educations like ones that bring the hearts literally into the church building like youth group and Sunday school. But then 
I've also read that studies have shown that it's actually really, really ineffective and in fact, counterproductive based off of the way things have been done in preventing young people from leaving the faith, which they, which they can do anytime from like middle school to college. And in fact, a lot leave like in middle school. And I, I think maybe it's like what you're saying is I suspect the lack of, of grappling with hard questions seriously and like taking kids, um, questions seriously may be, may be contributing to that. Cause then they go and they're like totally unprepared and, it's like, I don't know. It's big. That's another big issue. It is. Yeah, no, I, I think whether you're, I mean, are, are you in uh, in Washington, D.C. or state of Washington? The state of Washington. Okay, one of the okay. Most, yeah, I, I grew up in right next to one of the most unchurched counties in the in the nation, but yeah. Oh, I see. In the state of Washington, is that right? Yeah. So I grew up right adjacent to to King County, but um, to me, like the, it seems like any church I go to, the 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 youth ministries are basically all the same. And I was always frustrated as a kid, and it's it's not for lack of effort or lack for lack of the the love of the church staff or anything like that, but dealing with those really hard questions, like you know the the issue of. Um, what does the Bible say about homosexuality and, and things like this? Like all of these kids come in. I help with youth group, um, on, on Wednesdays and these kids come in and they're smart and they have so many questions and they need answers. And if you don't answer those questions, it seems like somebody else is going to step in and fill the vacuum, even if it's five years down the road when they're in college. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. Oh man, you know you're you know, you're talking about my own family. I mean, I have a high school freshman son. Um, you know, he's a Christian. His name is Christian. Um, you know, we go to a very very good church and a very serious and hardworking youth staff. And I would say, I know it sounds kind of a wishy-washy but like no one's to blame but there's disconnect right so so look mm -hmm. i'm not blaming me i'm not blaming the pastor i'm not blaming the youth pastor i'm not blaming my son but it's not what are the people that jiving that well and so i was talking to a friend of mine who said you know i'm going to switch churches for my daughter or my son so that they can go to a group where they can really belong and that's the thing right it's not it is equally as much a sense of knowing what true theology is, but it's equally as much of belonging to a group of people who will see me eyeball to eyeball and say, I love you and I embrace you, right? It's that sort of acceptance. Yeah. Right? It is that, that belonging, right? I mean, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And it says that I belong, body and soul, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior Jesus. It's, it's about belonging. And I do yeah. think that, you know what, like, you know, did I have all the, I mean, did, Je like, did Jesus give me all the answers when I first became a Christian? Absolutely not. Do I have all the answers right now? I don't. But what am I assured of? I am assured of the fact that I belong to my faithful Savior Jesus, who gave himself up for me. And to me, knowing that, like, you know, it's, it's love, right? I mean, it's that love that informs my it transforms my like my knowledge base, right? It is knowing that it's not that some kind of 
theological, philosophical proposition about the attributes of God that wooed my heart to love God. No, it's that there is just someone named Jesus who came and died for me. I was like, no, that can't be right. And then, like, the more I thought about it, I said, this has got to be the best news ever, right? So I, I, yeah. I, I teach both in religious studies and also in the divinity school as well as in the history department. And I don't mean to be dismissive of other religions. I'm not. But I would say this. If I have to name a particular world, particular major religion in the world where it posits that its divine figure or its representative of the divine goes to a, a goes through the length of a shameful death, state, you know, execution, right? And as a way of demonstrating his love for me and as a way of conquering the problem of evil and suffering. I don't know any other religion. Again, I'm not saying therefore it's better or not. I'm just stating the fact, by right? stating the internally coherent fact within that particular religion. You see what I mean? So, and yeah. I, I, you know, so what, one of the things that I'm actually profoundly thankful of to God, if I can use that language in this radio show, is that, you know what? Um, I have bleep ton of questions about the faith, right? But at the same time, I, you know, I was like, you know, when I think about the fact that God loves me, knowing all that I am, and like God's love, omniscient love blows me away, you know? My love toward anything or anyone is, you know, fragmented and, and, uh, imp- and, and not exhaustive love. Yet God knows everything about me, past, present, and future, and God has covenanted and committed God's self to love me. That I don't understand. And I think that language, right, that language of divine love, it's not totally lacking in other religious traditions, but it's the Jesus thing that really trips me up. It's like, whoa, that is the death of Jesus that really... Now, and to be fair, right, George, like the fact that Christians know all this, and yet how, we, how have we behaved toward, let's say, the Jews? I mean, in a crappy way, to say the least, right? I mean, so I, I taught this fantastic class with my... Jewish New Testament scholar colleague uh, Amy Jill Levine, a course on history of Jewish Christian relations. And as we, as I read some of the literature, uh, like I was blown away. Like Christians did not really think that. I mean, you know, like Martin Luther, someone I love deeply. Right? He's like in many ways singularly responsible for the unleashing of the impulses of modernity, as well as the putative or actual rediscovery of the gospel. But what did he write in 1543, right? The Jews and their lies. And I mean, things that, yeah. again, it it will issue all kinds of trigger warnings, right? So again, I think, you know, to be honest with you, if you are not well prepared and you read that and said, and your professor or teacher says, look at that, this is how crappy you all Christians are. What have I got to say? I'll just say, mm, and you multiply that in four times in four different classes, you come across things like that. It is the hypocrisy of the putative, you know, kind of Christians that would, again, weaken the plausibility structure. And also it is, and I think it's, so it, it happens sometimes imperceptibly. Sometimes uh, it happens in a sort of tremendous, like one major event way. And I, so I think part of my, my life's uh, uh, mission is to be uh, a tenured professor at a major university, loving all students, uh, enjoying working with my colleagues, and then being a sort of a what uh, Saint Augustine calls uh, 
sort of the sacramental presence of God in the world, which is what he meant by the church. You know, sacramental presence meaning it's a signpost that points to the reality, right? If I see, right, if I see a sign that says I'm on I-95 and I'm in Philadelphia, it says New York, 125 miles. The signpost isn't the ultimate reality, right? It's the sign that right. tells the reality is I got to go 125 miles to get to New York. So I think for me, uh, I hope I can be a sign that points to uh, someone and something much more beautiful, true and good, and that is God in Christ. So that's, I don't know, it sounds kind of hokey, yeah. but that's why I do what I do. No. I, I certainly did not intend to to be this. I, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. I thought I was going to be a bilingual corporate lawyer. And um, But someone else had a different story in mind for my life. I don't think of my life as a failure. I think it's been really, really a lot of fun. But I could not have written it uh, more weirdly than this. So, <laughs> Well, that is a great place to end. Thank you mm. so much for joining me today, Paul. It's been a really fascinating discussion. And I'm, I'm so glad that we got to connect. Um, yeah, I think the listener is really going to find this helpful and thought-provoking, which is always my goal with this podcast. Um, Thank you for the invitation. I really enjoyed it. And um, the Lord bless your journey and your work not in vain. Yeah, as well as you. You can find some of Paul's talks on YouTube. Just search Paul C.H. Lim. They're very interesting. And you can also buy his latest published book, Mystery Unveiled, The Crisis of the Trinity in Early Modern England on Amazon. Please, if you have thoughts on this episode, call or text the flip phone at 323-999-1802, where you can flip out or try to flip my position or tell me about your own flip-flop slash 180. I'm interested in hearing all of it. 323-999-1802. And of course, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at 180cast. Please consider giving the podcast a review on Apple Podcasts if you like it, because it really does help spread the podcast to more ears. You can follow me at Georgie underscore Borman, of course, where I speak my mind on a variety of topics from a Christian conservative worldview. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. To obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your money. I want you life. And I hear you say that I'm coming back soon But you act like I'll never return